Let's pray. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be glory. May your Son be glorified, and may your Spirit be lifted up, that we might be pleasing to the Father in this hour, and in the hours that follow from this. As we leave here with our heads full of truth and exhortation, I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to live the way you want us to live because of who you made us to be. Help us, Father, to have a little more clarity on that today. And may it produce much fruit in our lives and in the lives of the people we know and rub shoulders with. Pray, Father, that there would be salvation, the fruit of salvation in the lives of perhaps a few this morning who hear. And Father, we thank you in advance for what you're going to do with it. We may never know what the results are in terms of fruit from this message, but you do, and you are responsible for it all, and you get glory for it all, even when we don't know hardly anything that you're doing. But once in a while, Lord, you give us a glimpse and we wonder and marvel that you would use the likes of us and this little church to do great things for your glory. And so we thank you. Thank you for using us. Thank you for loving us. Help us learn to love Jesus more. We pray it in his great and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Far from being a passive affair, the Christian life is an active, rigorous endeavor that requires spirit-filled effort. Well, having finished our verse-by-verse -verse study of Romans chapter 6, I thought we would just start it all over again. Actually, I thought it might be profitable for us this morning to go back again and to pick up some of the things that I really wanted to talk about and didn't have sufficient time to do so. And Paul has been teaching us the deep, rich, theological intricacies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has been teaching us how that the ungodly sinners, which describes me at one time and all of us, how ungodly sinners are justified in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. In Paul's mind, however, the doctrine of justification, magnificent though it most definitely is, is not an end in itself. Rather, our justification, that is, the reality that in the courtroom of heaven God has declared you righteous in his sight, it's not an end in itself. Rather, justification always drives us to sanctification. God's objective in revealing these truths is not so much, listen carefully, it's not so much to make us educated as it is to make us holy. And that's what sanctification is all about. 
It's about becoming more like Christ, more pleasing to Christ in the way that we live and speak and behave and think and worship. Growing in that, learning in that. So here's the question. What should a follower of Jesus, like yourself, do to activate Paul's teaching in your life in your pursuit of sanctification, your pursuit of, I'm giving synonyms here, your, your spiritual growth, your progress, your holiness, your Christ-likeness. What should a follower of Jesus Christ, like yourself, do to activate Paul's teaching in your life in your pursuit of sanctification? And it seems to me that it's appropriate to ask what I must do because... We all remember Philippians 2, 12, and 13, right? Which very clearly states, work out your own salvation. And we don't have time to unpack that, but what he's really talking about is sanctification there. And you can check that out for yourself. But work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And since the word, work out, here is the present imperative verb. What Paul is really saying is this. You keep working, for God is continuously working on you. You keep on pursuing sanctification because God is working on you. This is really interesting, the way he words this, and it's not the only place in the Bible where we find this kind of thing. If we were to take the time to look at the book of Jude, it's only one chapter. In verse 21, listen to what he says. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then, three verses later, he says, now unto him, God, now unto him who is able to keep you. So who is it? That is keeping you. Are you keeping you or is God keeping you? And the answer is yes. But here's the difference. Here's the difference between your keeping and his keeping. Your keeping is a dependent keeping. And his keeping is an independent keeping. And that's the same way it is in sanctification. Your work in sanctification is a dependent work. God's work is an independent work. And he will see to it that it is completed. And he says so in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will faithfully complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So in other words, as you engage in spirit-filled effort in your sanctification, God is at work by his spirit to enable you to make progress in your sanctification. So in light of what Paul has taught us in the previous section in Romans, how should you pursue personal sanctification? Well, there's far more to talk about in, on this topic than I could possibly squeeze into several sermons, let alone one sermon. And many trees have died in an effort to explain this and to cover it all. But perhaps maybe the little bit that I share with you today uh, will be helpful in, in your progress toward 
growing in Christ-likeness, growing in holiness, or growing in your sanctification. Four bits of counsel implicit in the text will serve as our outline, and I'm going to rifle through them very quickly, and then we'll come back and talk about them one by one. Uh, if you want to make progress in your sanctification, you must, number one, know who you are. You must know who you are. That's identification. Number two, you must be who you are. That's emancipation. That sounds like a non sequitur, but I'll explain it here in a little bit. Number three, defend who you are. That's mortification. And then number four, practice or grow into who you are. That's sanctification. Or if you like the theological term, vivification. So before we start, as always, why don't we stand together, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and we are going to read Romans chapter 6. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what verses? No, no. Um, this is my last opportunity to read this text to you at, out loud. And so we're going to read the whole text. And I'm going to be all over this text this morning. So here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its lusts. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're under, uh, not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? 
either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have been saved, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Isn't that wonderful just to read a whole chapter? Remember at a shepherd's conference one time, we, were, we had just been talking about this, me and Brent and way back then about uh, reading long sections of scripture in the worship service. And uh, I thought a long section, I was in Psalm 119 and I read, uh, I think, four stanzas. And people came to me and they said, Pastor, we thought you were going to read the whole thing. We weren't sure what we were going to do if you read the whole thing. I mean, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And Mark Dever got up and he had a short introduction and he says, let's read a whole chapter. And it was Psalm 119. He read the entire thing. And it was glorious, just glorious to hear the uncommented upon word of God. So what should followers of Jesus do to activate Paul's teaching in your life so that you can make progress in your sanctification? Well, first of all, there is something you must know. There's something you must know. You need to know who you are. You need to know who you are. So Christian, who are you? Not who do you think you are, but who are you in God's sight? Paul began nudging us in this direction before he began writing chapter 6. So we can glance back at chapter 5 where kind of it all began. For example, 5.1, he tells us that we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. We read, through whom we have access to this grace. Again, in verse 15, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, when he transitions into chapter 6, Paul brings the same theme with him. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 6, we were buried with him in baptism. And, and you know what this is all about, because... We talked about this extensively. In each of these references, Paul's alluding to a certain doctrine. Do you remember the name of the doctrine? It is our union 
with Christ. I was really hoping you all would just say union, union, (laughs) because I've been hammering on it more than I thought I should. But Paul is alluding to the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Verse 4, he makes it even more explicit when on two occasions in that one verse, he refers to us being united with him. You are united with him. You're united with him. As far as God is concerned, you are one with him. And you are inextricably one with him. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? No one can separate you from the love of Christ. Oh, my friend, if you are going to make progress in your sanctification, you need to know that in the mind of God, you exist in union with Christ. You have been given an enormous privilege, an enormously privileged status in the eyes of God. You are no longer his enemy. And yes, you are his friend, but you're more than his friend. You're, not, you're, you're, you're more than a son or a daughter of God. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. I love how Paul says it when he wrote to the Colossians, this favorite doctrine of his. He says in Colossians 3, 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love that, and I've already told you that I love it, but I I love it so much I just wanted to say it again. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's union. You're united with Christ. You're You're like a branch connected to the vine. The vine is the source of that holy sap, the Holy Spirit, right? that vivifies your life. It gives life to you so that you can bear much fruit. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Same context. When he talks about the church, he talks about the head and the body. It's union. Union with Christ. Listen, beloved, when you stood before the Lord alone in Adam, you were living under the death sentence of the Almighty. Now you are no longer in Adam. You are now no longer in Adam because you are now in Christ. You are in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul tells us that if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature in Christ. That is, God doesn't look at him as he used to look at him. Now when he looks at the believer, he sees Christ. And now everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to you. Beloved, this is absolutely amazing. And it's all over the New Testament. And the truly amazing thing is that there's more. Because you are in Christ, as far as God is concerned, chapter 6, verse 1, you have died to sin. So this whole chapter is about your new relationship with sin and your new relationship with righteousness. 
As far as God is concerned, you have died to sin. That is, you are no longer under, under the dominion of sin. Sin cannot make you do anything. Satan cannot make you do anything. And later on in verse 14, he says, sin will have no dominion over you. Well, when? When will he not have dominion over you? From the moment you receive Christ and in the moment of every temptation, sin will not have dominion over you. It doesn't have authority over you. It can trick you. It can prod you. It can whine at you. It can draw, try to draw you, but it cannot make you sin. Whereas before, you were enslaved to sin. You were enslaved to sin. In verse 6 of chapter 6, your old self was crucified with Christ. In Christ, you are not who you once were. The old has passed away. The new has come. And when Paul speaks of, this might help you understand a little better, when Paul speaks of the newness that comes, the newness that has united you to Christ, what he is speaking about is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is what unifies Christ and you. You are indwelt with Christ. You have Christ. He has you. You have put on Christ, and he has put you in himself by his Spirit. Well, how does this help us in the pursuit of holiness? Well, it helps us enormously when we're tempted, because in the moment of temptation, we can say something like this. Why are you in the throes of temptation, O oh my soul? I know that I once was a slave to that kind of unrighteousness that you were waving before me just now, but I am done with that life. I'm done with you. I don't have to obey you anymore. And though I once lived in Adam, I now live in Christ, even if I don't feel like I'm in Christ. It doesn't matter what you feel. This is an eternal reality now that you cannot change. I have a new identity. I have a new name. I have new resources at my disposal to enable me to live in the glory of pleasing my new master. Here I stand. I can do no other. God helping me. And by the way, this is not new in the scriptures. We're going to see that here in a minute. If you want to make progress in your sanctification, this is where it begins. You need to know who you are. You need to know who you are. You need to know and continually learn who you are because there's much to learn. You're a child of God by faith who exists in union with Christ. And you are no longer a slave to sin. This is your identification. This is who you are. Second, you must not only know who you are, but you must 
be who you are. You must be who you are. Knowing who you are is first, but knowing it should move you to action. Spirit-filled effort. It's not until chapter 6, verse 11, that we finally hear Paul lay down a command. This is really interesting. The, The apostle has penned a staggering 149 verses without using a single imperative. He hasn't levied one command. But now he's going to throw down three in rapid succession. Three commands. First, take note of the word so in verse 11. The word so at the beginning of this verse invites us to glance backward to what has already been said so far, namely that the indicatives, that all the indicatives that have revealed who you are and what you are and what you now possess in Christ, all of that is yours. This is what he's been saying the whole time. And beloved, it's so important that we see the order here. Paul is very intentional about the order of things in this epistle. He gives, a, he gives to us a, a, a page after page, chapter after chapter, verse after verse of indicatives. You remember us talking about the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives are who you are, what the fact is about you. And the fact is that he wants you to remember is that you are in Christ and all of that means for you. And so he's given us page after page, chapter after chapter, verse after verse of indicatives. He invests all of this time and energy to reveal who you are and what you have before he tells you what to do. And beloved, this is one of the the unique qualities of biblical Christianity. Because when you look at the other religions, and even Judaism, it starts with the command, the command, the command, the command. It's always a legalistic methodology for becoming something. And God flips that on its head. And the reason he does is so that it would be by grace alone and so that it would be to the glory of God alone. And so God's method is, we change the man. We change his heart. We do what we promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We give him a new heart. And once he has a new heart, then he has the capacity to do what God is about to command, and to do it joyfully, And so he invests all this time and energy explaining who we are and what we have before he tells us what to do. And by the way, this is typical in Paul's writings. If we had time, I would show you this in his letter to the Ephesians. And the clock is my friend right now. So if you could, uh, why don't we just do that? I I really want you to see this. Because in Ephesians, Paul does something that he doesn't do here in Romans. Ephesians chapter 1, and beginning with verse 3. This is the longest Pauline verse in the New Testament. 
And I'm just going to give you a little sample of it. So remember what we're talking about here. Paul starts by telling us who we are before he tells us what to do. And here's how he does it here in Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. See, in Christ there. In Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us as adoption, uh, for adoption as sons through Jesus. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is, in Christ, in him we, have, we are redeemed, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. It's a plan for the fullness of time. And it just goes on and on and on. I want you to know, it's what Charles Spurgeon calls that first chapter of Ephesians the believer's checkbook. Because it's gift after gift after gift after gift. after It's grace after grace after grace after grace after grace. He's not telling us to do anything. Just absorb this. Meditate on this. Let it ruminate. Let it get into your pores. Get it into your mind. Get it into your heart. Who you are and what God has given you in Christ. And this is what we see. And by implication, Paul declares repeatedly both to the church in Rome and to the church in Ephesus, this is who you are. And this is what you have. This is who you are, and this is what you have. Only then does he venture to command you to do certain things. And when he does command us to do this or that, or to abstain from this or that, you know what he's really saying with those commands? He's saying this, be who you are. Be who you are. Be who you are and use what you have been given. And when you do, you will discover that you are truly free. You are no longer shackled to sin. You have been released from bondage to sin. You are set free from that old tyrant, Adam, and the devil. Beloved, this is so important for us. I think we approach the Christian life wrongly sometimes. I think most of the time, when we're thinking about our relationship with God, the first thing we think about is, what does he want me to do? How have I failed him? And there's a place for that. There's a place for that. But the order that we find in Scripture is, remember who you are. Remember who you are. 
And then be who you are. The obedience will flow out of who you are and the resources that God has given. Remind yourself after you have sinned and you come before the Father. Remind yourself who you are. You are a son. And the forgiveness that he grants in 1 John 1, 9 is fatherly forgiveness. This is not the judge condemning. This is your father. This is who you are. You are a son and daughter of God. Know who you are before you do what you believe he wants you to do. So be who you are. Use your new status and resources to enjoy your freedom in Christ. Not freedom to do what you, whatever you want to do, but freedom to please the Lord in everything. Freedom to discover how to be pleasing to the Lord and every, in every instance, in every circumstance, and rejoice in the reality that the things that God has given you in Christ really work. They're really powerful. Thirdly, if you desire to make progress in your sanctification, not only know who you are, be who you are, number three is defend who you are. Defend who you are. I'm going to call this mortification. It gets ugly because it requires battle. You see, the enemy of your soul is not at all happy about your change in allegiances. The Apostle Peter wrote this, 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And of course, don't misunderstand this, Peter's not saying that the devil has the power or authority to rob you, rob the child of God of his eternal inheritance in Christ in heaven. That's not possible. But listen carefully. The passive, lazy, careless believer sets himself up for disaster. Shipwreck. And so every Christian must always be ready to engage in spiritual warfare. You've got to fight for this. It's a battle. You've got to fight your own heart. You've got to fight unbelief. We see this in three commands, the three commands that Paul gives when he finally gets around to giving a command. And I'm just going to hit these very quickly. The first imperative, this is in verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. And here's what he says. Consider. He's, he's calling you to think in a certain way, right? Consider yourselves, what? Dead to what? To sin. Sin, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I've defriended you long, long ago. You keep showing up on my new technologies. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's that in Christ Jesus again. So that's command number one. Command number two, second imperative, verse 12. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its lusts. Don't allow sin to reign in your body. Why? 
because that is not becoming of who you are. You don't have to, and you shouldn't. And if you do, the Holy Spirit is going to come after you. There is a, an old poem called The Hound of Heaven. And I always imagine this when I think about these things, when, when my heart drifts uh, or I engage in some sin. If I, if I don't do anything about it for very long, the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, starts chasing you down like a sheepdog, running you back to safety where you belong. So the second imperative is, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make it obey, uh, uh, to make you obey its lust. And the third one is this. Here's the third command. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. And you remember last time we talked about what are the members. The members are the members of your body, the parts of your body, your hands, your eyes, what you look at, what you listen to, where you go, the people the things that you say and how you speak. and This all gets very, very practical. Behind these imperatives is the reality of the believer's new relationship with sin. That is, the believer is no longer shackled to sin. These three commands are negative. That is, we must maintain a defensive posture against them in our relationship with sin. We must always be prepared to kill sin at the very first provocation. Wayne Mack and his son Josh wrote a book that currently is entitled um, uh, Fight to the Death. That's not what they wanted to entitle uh, that book. They, they wanted the, the name of the book to be Kill or Be Killed. Uh, but I guess it was too close to 9-11 at the time and they just wouldn't allow it. But it's, but it's clearly what the attitude that Paul has. Kill or be killed. You can't play around with sin. You can't play around with, with um, your sanctification. The English Puritans had a name for, for this, this killing of sin. It is mortification, to mortify. To mortify sin simply means to kill it. In practical terms, as, as soon as you sense temptation to sin, you must engage in the battle until that temptation is dead. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, that's a great question. That may mean that you have to get up in the middle of a movie and walk out. It may mean that um, when you're tempted to gossip, you may need to separate yourself from the conversation. I remember when I was in seminary one time, uh, a lot of weird stuff happens in seminary, and the guys are young, and they're hot-headed, and they're, and, uh, but once in a while, they'll be a, 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 a truly sanctified individual or when it comes across that way. And we were having this conversation, and it was not a good conversation. I don't know, I have no idea what we were saying. I just know that it became apparent that it was sinful, and I was just there. 
And one of the guys, when, when the rest of us took a breath, he looked at us and he said, uh, can I ask you guys a question? And I said, sure. And he said, would you please tell me what it is about my life that makes you feel comfortable saying these kinds of things in my presence? Tell me what's wrong with me that you feel okay. Now, I'm not saying you do that. But I am saying we need to take this seriously. We need to mortify sin. We need to kill sin. When you're tempted to gossip, you may just need to get up and separate yourself and maybe explain why. You may have to end a friendship. You may need to delete an app on your phone or get rid of your computer or set up some kind of software. And in Matthew 5:29, Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it far from you. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. In biblical counseling, we call this radical amputation. The point is, if you're going to make progress in your sanctification, you need to defend who you are. The lazy, the passive, you're just bait. And that means, if you're going to do what Paul has called us to do, we need to mortify sin. We need to mortify it. And then finally, if you're going to grow in sanctification, you need to know who you are, you need to be who you are, you need to defend who you are, and you need to practice or grow into who you are. To the Puritans, the flip side of mortification is called vivification. I want to hear all of you using that word at least once today. Someone may say, God bless you. The old word vivify simply means to give life. So on the one hand, there are things we're killing. Sin we're killing. But on the other hand, we want to be giving life to other things. While you remain in the defensive posture, ready to kill sin at any moment's notice, you should also invest in a disproportionately greater amount of time feeding your soul. This is why it's so important to start your day with the Word of God and fellowship with the Lord in prayer and confession of sin. This is why you should be deeply committed to a, a strong biblical church, even if it's not Calvary. It's why you need to develop friendships that encourage you in the Lord and hold you accountable when you are tempted, like my friend in seminary did. Do you have anybody around you who would be that bold? It's why you should consider asking an older, more mature member of the church to disciple you. It's why you should date a believer who is your spiritual equal. It's why you should meditate and memorize on specific passages of Scripture. There was once a teenage boy here at Calvary Bible Church. He's in the ministry now. And I remember him uh, talking to, uh, he was telling me about a, a discipleship conversation he was having with a, a boy younger than him. And uh, the only part of it I remember is, is he looked at this kid in the eye and he said, 
What? You don't meditate on scripture? How do you deal with lust? <laughs> Good question. Can anybody in your life who's going to be upfront with you and blunt with you? It's why you should meditate on specific passages of scripture. And the list of positive investments in your spiritual life can go on and on. But the point is, growing in your sanctification requires discipline and practice. Show me a man or woman who truly is mature in Christ, and I'll show you a man or woman who is intentional, disciplined, and proactive in the things that vivify their soul. And beloved, there's so much more to learn here, and I hope this has given you some things to think about on this Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, by the way. But here's the message. Far from being a passive affair, the Christian life is an active, rigorous endeavor that requires spirit-filled effort. But let me just say one more thing. If you don't know the Lord, no amount of effort is going to get you in right standing with God. God invites you to come to his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to take the penalty of your sin, the sin that you, you did and he didn't deserve. He paid the price for you. And if you will receive it merely by grace through faith, he will receive you. And you will become a child of God, loved by God, loved by Christ, and loved for eternity. Father, we thank you for this time, and we ask you to use it in our lives to change us, to make us more holy. And in our holiness, we believe will come happiness and joy. So, Father, do that in us, we pray. We all have a long way to grow and so we plead with you to do it and give us the grace, Father, to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is you, O Lord, our God, who is at work in us to make us like your Son. These things we ask in the name of Savior, our Savior Jesus. Amen.